we could we could make a little happy talk intro out of talking about happy talk. You made fun of Mac pretty well. <laughs> yeah, did you leave all that stuff in about Mac? About his head. And you guys remember about Mac, about how he looks like uh, George C. Scott. Have you ever noticed that Mac looks like George C. Scott? Have you seen, hey, have you seen uh, Dr. Strangelove? I'm telling you, that's Mac Ward. Just look at him. It's just amazing. So we'll just use this for the happy talk intro. All right. There you go. Welcome back to the podcast. We're here with uh, Dr. Austin Baraki. And let's continue our discussion about um, certain aspects of both strength training, strength and conditioning, the strength and conditioning profession, and uh, the medical profession and the allied health fields. And we were previously discussing uh, some interesting concepts that uh, have you, if you've watched our last podcast, you'll realize uh, will dovetail nicely with the topic that we're going to talk about right now, which is that you are not a special snowflake. <laughs> You are a human organism, more or less just like me. Maybe less, maybe more. <laughs> but the tendency for lots and lots of people to think that uh, since you are a special snowflake, uh, there are general principles that work for everybody else that just don't apply to you. And uh, what this leads to is a bunch of wasted time. Austin, help us. Yeah, so the special snowflake problem. I think that might be uh, the title of our next article that me and, me and Jordan are co-authoring right now. Mm. But part of the problem, I mean, it's, 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 it's also becoming increasingly pervasive as what would superficially appear to be a good thing is happening. And what I mean by that is that coaches, people who are traditionally on the strength coach end of the spectrum, are learning more, they're studying, they're reading, they're, they're kind of trying to learn more about the therapy profession so that they can help more people, maybe help people who are injured or weak or frail or sick or whatever. And then at the same time, there actually is, believe it or not, a growing movement of therapists who are actually becoming a little bit more interested in training, getting people stronger. Uh, and, and it's happening, I think, as some younger younger folks are going through PT school who maybe people who were previously athletes and had an interest in the field or something like that. And so they're kind of going through the PT school model and they're realizing that, you know, I can, I can apply this to my patients. And so from both ends of the spectrum, we have this situation happening where the, the lines are being blurred uh, between kind of what we alluded to last podcast, the complexities of physiology, medicine, uh, things like that. And then things that are actually quite a bit more simple, which is physical training, um, particularly when you have a particular goal, like to get somebody stronger. So some of the things that we've seen recently, uh, you discussed a little bit, I think, back with Nikki on her podcast, where we're talking about people who train in a way that feels good or a way that, quote, works for them, as an example, right? right? Whatever that actually means, however they can measure that uh, objectively about themselves. Well, what it boils down to in, in that particular situation is the difference between exercise and training. Sure. And uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with our definitions of these concepts, exercise is performed 
for the way it makes you feel today, right? The way it makes you feel today is unfortunately a rather subjective assessment. And if your uh, preconceived notions of the way you're supposed to feel today uh, do not result from the application of an, act, of, a, of an effective training program, in other words, if the workout uh, that you did today as part of this effective training program does not make you feel sufficiently tired or sore or winded or sweaty or whatever the situation is, your subjective perfect, uh, perception of that situation uh, is probably and it's almost assuredly not accurate uh, as we understand uh, training and exercise and the difference between the two. And uh, so thinking about things in terms of the way it makes you feel today is, is what Nikki was talking about. Works yeah. for you. Yeah, it's not helpful way of analysis. No, no. And, no, and, so. and so there is um, admittedly some degree of variation um, among humans in terms of human anatomy, human proportions, human anthropometry, which we are all fully aware of. And so some of the criticisms that we've gotten before is that our model is dogmatic, our model is absolutist. Um, not I, I everybody saw, deadlifts the same yeah. way. Oh, God, how many articles have you written about this? Have, yeah. you seen, so, have you seen written about this? And it's not as if we don't know that. Yes. You know, that's, that's where our material is taken out of context. Yes, and of course, because it's seen easier that. to do it that way. Yeah. Argue against your version of someone's argument, right? Yeah. And so I yeah. saw a video, someone plastered up the picture of, of uh, the low bar squat out of the text and said, this is not how everybody squats. And this is why, and blah, 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 blah. And, we said, and we're like, yeah, we know that, yeah. but we have a model. And a model is how we base our analysis of the movement. And so um, while there is admittedly some variation among humans and human anatomy, as I said, um, it, is not, it is typically not sufficient enough to require significant deviations in people's training, usually, the vast majority of the time. As we've noted at the seminars, uh, where we have people really of pretty broad backgrounds, not all people who are already lifters come into our seminars, uh, and we can get usually 100% of them squatting below parallel, pulling from the floor with a flat back, pressing overhead with no problem. And so there's a lot of these articles that are written by these folks who I said are kind of impin you know, um, invading each other's territory in terms of trying to coaches trying to be therapists and therapists trying to be coaches. Right where they're saying, let me apply the therapy model to how I'm going to coach this movement. And so there was one article recently that has kind of spurred our interest in our, you know, our article that we're writing on this, where they said they, they take the movement, so let's take the deadlift, for example, and they literally break the deadlift down from the feet to the head, joint by joint, all the way up. And they recommend that before you ever have someone go near a barbell or a weight or anything, you, before you ever start coaching them, you must individually assess each joint using a physical exam test. And should that test be positive, whatever that might signify, you have an intervention to fix it, a corrective exercise. Right. right. This is the corrective exercise dogma. And it is, in fact, a dogma because it is applied that way. Yeah. And... Uh, 
I mean, it's, it's interesting that the default assumption uh, is also so damn profitable for the office. It is, yes. It is tests that you know. they perform, and they have the interventions to do, and they can do extensive amounts of, they can say, oh, you need six weeks of ankle mobility right. before you'll right. pick the bar off the floor. In lieu of just coaching the deadlift correctly, which we have found uh, is, it, in my opinion, of having done these seminars every month for the past 10 years, the deadlift is the easiest of the barbell exercises to get a correct, a correctly executed set out of a novice uh, in with about 10 minutes worth of work. Most people get deadlift correctly in about 10 minutes if you know how to coach it. Now, if you don't know how to coach it, and if you're more interested in profiting from the fact that you don't know how to coach it than you are in learning how to coach it, then yeah, right, six months or six weeks or six years worth of stretching would probably be more in your interest, even if it's not in the interest of the client or the athlete. This, this article that, we, that, we, that started our interest in the topic, literally, the first thing that they said is that you need to assess every client's ankle mobility before you teach the deadlift. There's only, that, that is so fucking weird. There's only like 10 degrees of tibial incline in a correctly yeah. executed deadlift anyway. Yeah. Unless your ankle is fused. Even if you're wearing, there's barely any. Say, and then say you put somebody in heels, there's none. <laughs> <laughs> And, the, and so the first thing you have to do is you have to take them up to a wall and put their feet a few inches away from the wall and bend their knee forward and see if they can touch the wall with their knee before you ever teach them the deadlift. Right, Don't, which, do which not you're not going to do in a deadlift anyway. Do not pass go if they can't do this. <laughs> and then after that, <laughs> you go to the knee. Then you assess Oh, God, what does the knee have to do in a deadlift? I can't remember. Just it's bend a little bit or what? And then, it's a rather I don't high know, hips oh, position. I don't know if you know, but deadlift positioning requires like 115 to 130 degrees of hip flexion. That's what they, that's what they say. Really? And so, of course, that can be far too much flexion for some people. You have to assess everybody across the board to assess their hip flexion before they teach the deadlift. And so right. this is where my problem came into the picture. This is where I started, I mean, not really started to have a problem with it, but this is where it really crystallized, right? So, yes, we have some clients who have a difficult time setting their low back. We teach them to set their low back, and they can almost always do it right. What these people are recommending is that based on the fact that there exists a degree of variation among humans, that we must screen everyone for these particular deficits that they're looking for before we teach the barbell lifts. We must screen everyone for inadequate ankle dorsiflexion before they pull for inadequate knee whatever, for right. inadequate hip mobility. Because, of so, course, it's irresponsible to do otherwise, right? Yes, right. And, and they've said that. They said right. that there was a post I saw that said, can you believe that there are coaches out there who are teaching these lifts without doing these thorough assessments for their clients? As well, if it's hey, can you believe that there are coaches out there who are not doing these assessments who are nonetheless <laughs> successfully coaching the movement? Yeah. Isn't it astonishing? So my... Uh, <laughs> my that, that it works. Like 99.9993% of the time. Yeah. So my problem with that assertion, that everyone needs to be screened, comes from my understanding of screening for medicine. Right. right? So there is screening that happens in medicine a lot. We screen for colon cancer. We screen for breast cancer. 
We screen for all sorts of things, right? And there are basic criteria for what what helps us decide whether something should be screened for or not. Right. So, and this is where things get complicated, but very important for people to understand, to understand kind of the heart of this argument. So, in order to screen for a particular disease in medicine, for example, number one, there must be sufficient prevalence of the problem in the population. In the general the population, right. There must be enough prevalence. That is to say, there must be enough people who have the problem so that screening becomes a useful, or a, a, a good use of resources, right? Right. Number two, you need to have a valid, reliable screening test. And it needs to be pretty sensitive. So your test that you do must be able to reliably determine the thing that you're looking for, whether or not it exists. And number three, should you find a positive test in this population of interest that you're screening, it must be true that early intervention for the problem causes an improvement in what we would call morbidity or mortality, i.e. worsening disease or death, right? So those are the things that will make screening justifiable, a good use of resources, right? right. It's a major problem. We can find it quickly, easily, cheaply, and if we intervene soon enough, we can save a lot of harm down the line. Right. So, if you are screening in the deadlift for 45 degrees of dorsiflexion before you allow anyone to deadlift, does that test pass the smell test for a reasonable thing to screen for? And yeah. no. It fails it, all three. It, all three. There is not a sufficient amount of people out there who have inadequate dorsiflexion to deadlift. That fails number one. The, there, it is not a pervasive enough problem to even look for because you're going to waste time and you're going to find too many false positives that are of unknown or often little significance. So that fails number one. Number two, your screening test. So your screening test where you put somebody's knee up against the wall, does that reliably determine someone's ankle dorsiflexion? Maybe I'll give you that one that it it, it might. Well, and it also does not reliably determine a person's inability to deadlift correctly. Yes. Which is more, more, more to the point. Yeah. If it's positive test, it's more likely going to be a false positive when it comes to their ability to deadlift. And then finally, does early intervention on their problem of ankle mobility by having them stretch their ankles for six weeks reduce morbidity or mortality? No one's going to die, but does it reduce injury rates? Does it reduce some conceivable concrete problem down the line from teaching them to deadlift. And no, it doesn't. The, Austin, there's a cat behind you. <laughs> That's true. Hi, cat. Oh, it's Ara. Oh, God, the cat just broke something. Did, did the cat just break the china or what? I think it knocked over a candle, like a little candle glass holder. Cats. God almighty. All right, you ought to have, I mean, a cat. <laughs> All right, anyway, probably an excellent analogy here uh, would be, uh, and, and, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's recently been a de-emphasis on, uh, on colonoscopy for colon cancer screening. Is that correct? Because, um, because of the fact that it, in fact, does not... Uh, 
end up as being as useful as useful a use of resources as it once was once was thought to be. Uh, so there is increasing controversy about it. I wouldn't say it's yes. been de-emphasized. Right. There have been That's some alternative and, and alternative and less expensive and less invasive methods that are being that are have been that are becoming slightly more acceptable. Right. But I think a better analogy is actually prostate cancer prostate screening. Prostate cancer that, that, screening. That's yeah. a major one where we used to check everyone's PSA, and if it went over four or five or whatever, then it's like, oh, we need to go and biopsy your prostate and stuff like that. And so right. now that's we found that the test. So the problem there, number one, the prevalence. There is a plenty of pre prevalence of prostate cancer, right? Right. There's plenty of it around. So yeah, we thought, why not look for it, right? Our test was okay. It wasn't a very good test no. because it's not always correlated with prostate cancer and vice versa doesn't always occur where it's negative when there is when there isn't prostate cancer so it's not a great test either so it failed number 2 and then number 3 when it came to the third one where we decide does early intervention help prevent morbidity or mortality in the long run that also was hazy because prostate cancer is such a slow moving cancer that as we say most people die with prostate cancer rather than of prostate cancer so that made screening a whole lot more controversial and that Excuse me. And now less people are actually screening for prostate cancer, com much less compared to before, because we realize that hey, two out of our three criteria aren't as good as we thought. And this, this, these criteria are the way that that efficient, useful screening should be decided. And these people, these therapists, these coaches who think that every joint of your body needs to be independently screened by some obscure test of unknown validity, of right. unknown reliability, um, in order to save you from some nebulous injury that's, risk. That's that not going know. to happen anyway. Yeah, that's and the problem. So, so it sums yeah. up by saying you're not a sufficiently special snowflake to need to be screened, is right. what, I, what it comes down to. <laughs> and furthermore your coach the guy or the the therapist who whoever is 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 advocating all of this analysis and diagnosis prior to just teaching you how to squat how to deadlift correctly uh, may be hiding behind the fact that he actually doesn't know how to coach it and if it's coached correctly nobody gets hurt doing it anyway hmm? 80 year old women can deadlift on day one, if you know how to coach them, how to, how to do it, and all this diagnosis and testing is uh, a, an extremely clever way to get out of having to actually show you that they don't really know how to teach you how to deadlift. And teaching you how to deadlift correctly is a far better way to prevent an injury when doing the deadlift than all of the screening and follow-up incorrect coaching on the deadlift and uh, I really wonder what these people think is going to happen if you have somebody squat an empty bar without doing these assessments or what is going to happen if you have them press an empty bar or pull 60 pounds off the floor or something like right. that like what is going to like what does what every bad thing what yeah. bad thing is going to happen but uh, you know I, I I don't know it's 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 such a puzzle that the people that want to argue about all this don't really seem to understand that we, you don't take the 80-year-old lady into the, into the weight room and load the bar to 135 
you know, we, we, that's not the way it's Start done. Training. And that's not, the, and if you think that's the way it's done, then you're really not entitled to an opinion about this. Yeah. Because that's not what's done. Mm -hmm. No one, that's malpractice. No one's advocating, no sane person advocates that. You know, maybe the 19-year-old kid at Gold's Gym thinks everybody can squat 135, but we're talking about professional barbell coaches here. That's not the way it's done. And we certainly do not need a whole bunch of, of testing protocols that, that merely postpone mm -hmm. what, the, what the coach ought to be doing on day one, which is correctly teaching the movements. Anyway, correctly teaching the movements. There exists a weight at which the movement can be performed for everyone. Find that weight. Go up from there. That's... That sounds awful uh, you know, absolutist of you, right? It does, doesn't it? And, <laughs> and the, the interesting thing is, is that covers all the snowflakes. You know, that, that, that's, there's your snowflake yeah. solution. Yeah. You know? Agree. And uh, I think that it's, uh, you know, there's been a lot of money made doing it the other way, though. Sure. You and you can come up with really complicated alternative exercises for people who, because of their femur length or their right. height, whatever, you say, oh, it's not safe for you to deadlift off the floor, so I'm going to go have you do this other thing. Well, I like the functional movement screen. Yeah. That makes gyms a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're, most of them are charging $200 for that assessment. Uh, I know a lot of gym owners that have sent their staff to go get certified in FMS. Yeah. And uh, because it's an income stream. Yeah. That's its primary function. It's an income stream for the club. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I think it's uh, uh, a clever way to mask the fact that your people don't know how to coach. So instead of, in lieu of coaching, they test. I think we've got CJ writing an article on the FMS soon. And I Excellent. wonder if he'll apply those criteria of screening to the FMS and say, hey, does it fit all these criteria? Mm -hmm. Are the problems that you're testing for, supposedly, of sufficient prevalence in the population? Are your tests reliable enough? And does intervention by whatever method that FMS guy tells you to do on these people for their corrective exercises, does it, has it been shown or do we know that it prevents all the injuries that you thought were gonna happen? Or even predicts the ones that you, that you think will happen mm -hmm. if you don't do, don't do the interventions. And the answer to that is no. Yeah. And uh, several papers have been written that looked at this and none of them have shown anything other than makes the club a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so special snowflakes, what an interesting topic. Uh, chances are you are not a special snowflake and uh, uh, a continuing uh, pursuit of snowflake status is just <laughs> slowing you down. If you, want to get, if you want to get something accomplished, get busy and get it done. Austin, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Uh, we'll talk more soon. And thank right. you for watching the podcast. We'll see you next time.